Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome to a bonus edition of the Rabona podcast. No, I am not Musa Kwonga, as you may have noticed. I am Ryan Hun, but I will be joined shortly by Musa on the phone. This one's going to be a little bit different. Musa and I recorded in the studio after Real Madrid Ajax, but then PSG Manchester United happened. So we decided to do this tonight before Musa's off on his travels. So we're going to get into that in a little bit and we're going to talk about the amazing Ajax performance in the Bernabeu against Real Madrid and speak to Michael about Dortmund Spurs. But first off, I have a very happy Musa Ogwonga on the line. Hey, man. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, wow. I mean, <laughs> that is one of the greatest, not only Manchester United results I've seen, but in context, one of the greatest Champions League comebacks I've ever seen. Well, it's a historic one. It's the first time that's ever happened, right? Unbelievable. And look, to have had those back-to-back, to have had that the night after Rail Ajax, which if somebody had said to you, Rail Ajax will only be, will be the second most remarkable result of that week, you wouldn't have believed it. No. Like, I actually, I said twice, I actually spoke on social media to Red Voices podcast. They're fantastic. You can find them on Twitter at Red Voices MUFC, a Manchester United podcast. And I said, I was talking to Richard Can uh, before, and I was like, look, we're going to do this. And I said again in the second half, look, I still think we'll do it. Because I was just like, you know what? Why not be optimistic? But there's a difference saying that in optimism and actually, actually believing it. And there was a period as, you know, the last 25 minutes came in, you were like, this is anybody's game. Yeah, well, I think the thing that United did really well was, um, I think Philippe Claire said on, on Twitter, I think, United didn't really deserve to win the game, but PSG absolutely deserved to lose it. And what United did really, really well was they just kept in the tie. Exactly. Yeah, so that, that, I mean, I'm not 100% sure whether that was a penalty or not, but that's kind of irrelevant, in my opinion. It's the fact that despite all of the injuries, all of the circumstances, United kept themselves in the tie so that if something like that happened, they could nick it. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think that was the key. The key was not to outplay PSG because that was never going to happen. But to keep it competitive, and you know, all the players stepped up. Mm. The only one who didn't really was Bai. Bai had a strange assignment, but also did not acquit himself very well. And the main concern for United has to be that Bai's concentration has absolutely plummeted, and he looks a quarter of the player that he was at his peak for United. But everything else, McTominay, Fred, these are players who are not performing to their potential, and they were outstanding, defensively outstanding. Pereira, the energy, the drive, obviously Lukaku, we've mentioned. Rashford, the guts to thrash a top corner penalty against Buffon away from home in the last 16 of the Champions League and his first ever penalty for Manchester United. You'd have to go a very, very long way to find greater nervelessness. The only penalties I've seen of greater nerves are probably Rakitic in Russia. In the last two years, Rakitic's penalty against Russia in Russia is the only penalty I can think of immediately 
of that pressure mm. um, in that context. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, what United did tonight and Solskjaer now, I mean, he frankly has to have the job because if he doesn't get the job, then everyone's going to be like, it never felt under Pochettino how it felt under Solskjaer. And I'm not even saying that Pochettino is a worse coach than Solskjaer. I think that Solskjaer is the best possible Manchester United coach, which is a different thing. It's a different thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the thing is, it's, there are no reasons for him not to get the job, apart from the fact that he maybe hasn't got the CV. That's it, well, basically. He, he's but passed the, every audition. Exactly. The ideas, the idea you know, to play Pereira as a false line, to play Lingard as a false line, to shuffle the pack, to use McTominay, to go on the front foot, to use Lukaku as a winger. He is making adjustments to bring on Chong and Mason Greenwood. Yeah. To bring on these players, the guts, the sheer guts to bring in. If you consider that, you know, other coaches might have made more defensive choices, they might have minimized, you know, the concessions. When they went down, they might be like, okay, well, you know, let's just have a safe second leg. But he actually threw everything at, at PSG and the restraint of some of the playmaking. I mean, even, you know, the, the penalty was, you know, there'll be arguments over that. But even the way that United kept the ball in that last minute, leading up to the shot that Dalot took, they didn't just thrash it. Mm. They they kept playing football. You know, don't get me wrong; their possession figures were were brutal in many ways. But when it counted, United had incredible composure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think yeah, yeah, you're totally yeah. right with the with the with the tactical thing because we saw it against Liverpool how Solskjaer responded to the injuries and made tactical tweaks, and I, I was really impressed by that actually. And I've been impressed with a lot of his decisions, especially in the last month. I think in the last month he really seems to have grown into that role, and right. um, you've seen more interesting lineups, formations, tactical tweaks. It's like Nish said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, he's not just a competition winner. No, no, no. No, he's the real deal. Yeah. We said, didn't we, I think when he was announced, that you've got a guy there who has scored arguably the most important or at least the most dramatic goal in Man United's history. Certainly the recent history, yeah. Certainly the recent history. And now that guy has overseen the most dramatic United comeback, arguably since the goal that he scored. Well, certainly since since the days of, obviously, Sir Alex Ferguson. I mean, we can say that much. We can say that he has... I mean, you know what's incredible about this, just sort of stepping back from this particular result, the tragedy of Neymar and Ramos, Neymar coming down to the touchline I mean, it was almost like the gods brought low, like he's up in the crowd, you know, watching the game, laughing along. And, and to see him come down to the bench, everything about this was astonishing. This game drew everyone in. I, you know, I, was, I was sitting here watching and I was just thinking, what an absolute privilege to have watched Real Ajax and this. Yeah, I mean, the thing I was thinking watching this was how it felt like the identities really shone through this week as opposed yeah. to the yeah. finances. And I know that United have a financial powerhouse, but I mean, with the players they had on the pitch, it's a different thing. And there was a there was an intangible element to this United win that just you wouldn't have seen or we, uh, we haven't seen since Ferguson. Right, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's the magic of it. That's the chemistry of what Solskjaer has brought. And I think that, you know, it, it's just, he's just such a great... It's, it's, it's funny, the connection between, and this going to sound like a bit of a hot take, the connection between Simeone and Atletico Madrid is the same connection I see between Solskjaer and Manchester United. Yeah, well, that's fair, I think. You know, because Simeone may go somewhere else and may not be as good. He may go to Juventus or Inter, more likely Inter, and not be as good. But his connection, his specific connection with Atleti is what elevates Atleti. And Solskjaer's specific connection with United is what elevates them. 
How does yeah. this make you feel with the injuries? The squad's really thin at the moment. I mean, I suppose if you're going to look at it in a slightly negative way, United are in a real battle to finish in the top four. Yeah. I don't think they will win the Champions League. And, and you never know. I mean, you me, never know. Me neither. Me neither. Only because each round gets harder. Mm-hmm. Each round gets harder uh, of the Champions League. This people, people forget with major tournaments, oh, we got to the quarterfinals, could have gone the way. No, because each round is exponentially more difficult. Yeah. And now those next rounds... Those teams have seen United coming. They've seen what United have to offer, what they don't have to offer. A lot of players coming back, but the beauty is the competition for places now mean that this Champions League is anyone's. I don't think United will win. Mm. But I'm not saying that to doubt them. I'm saying that in the same way I don't think that Atleti will win or Spurs, because frankly, any one of those teams can see themselves having an equal chance now. All bets are off. Yeah. All I re- bets. You know what, I really, well, sorry, the combination of ties is really exciting. Yeah. I mean, do you know what? Like, I think I think this week would have been a massive wake-up call for Barca. I do not think they are going to take that tie next week against Lyon lightly, that second leg. No, not at all. Because, I mean, well, that's 0-0 nil from the first leg. You know? well yeah, nil nil from the first leg. Right. That's not done. I think you saw tonight how, I think PSG expected to get through, even playing in third gear. And yes, absolutely. It really bit them. I thought from a PSG point of view, they still had more than enough on the pitch to win that game comfortably. Absolutely. This is going to really haunt them. All the work Tuchel's done in making them a really um, a formidable side. This is devastating for the PSG project. And actually the first big setback for Kylian Mbappe in his career, I would say. Yeah. You know, because there'll be an inquest about chances he should have finished. I mean, actually, I think he had more of a mixed performance. I don't think he was poor. I think there's going to be hyperbole about him. I think that he did a lot of dangerous things and the fault lies elsewhere, but he will get a large amount of, of blame for this. But PSG now, I mean, look, they've thrown all this money at the Champions League in plain sight for years on end. And what do they have to show for it? They don't just have to, you know, because Champions League is difficult to win, don't get me wrong, Ryan, but this this was a humiliation. Mm. They've been humiliated now, you know, two years running. It wasn't long before the bottled it tweets were coming out. Yeah. And um, really, they're a, they're a VAR handball decision away from not bottling it, although not yeah. playing well, you know, but if that VAR decision doesn't get given, then that narrative isn't there. I just think that they were made to pay for being complacent, I think. And um, I'm not sure if that's bottling it or what. But they've blown a lot of key opportunities in the last few years to really make serious progress in this competition. So at some point, it's not always poor luck. This, yeah, this was complacency. Yeah, Tuchel, Tuchel wasn't complacent. He wasn't complacent, but his players were. Mm. The squad he put out, the team he put out was very balanced. Um, it was good enough to do the job. And the players themselves, they lacked urgency, the tempo in the passing. Yeah. And I think what happened as well is that United players play to their potential. If you look at the actual players on the pitch, McTominay has been, you know, the biggest criticism of McTominay has not been that he's a poor player. It's that actually there's been an excessive conservatism in his play, for me anyway. And in a game that suited his discipline, he was outstanding. Fred played like the player that United signed. Mm-hmm. Pereira played like the player United signed. So actually what happened was that everyone played to their level. Mm. This is the thing. This is the United that we expected to see. There was an element, I think, of fortune as well. They weathered the first half well. Fundamentally, United played up to the level. PSG dropped by, what, 25%? And that was enough. At this level, that's enough. Yeah, the difference was United did what they needed to do. And if PSG had done what they needed to do, then what United had wouldn't have been enough. But that's that's not on United. I mean, I couldn't believe it. They've just posted an incredible picture on, on um, United's Twitter. They've got Cantona 
in a sort of flat cap, Yorkshire flat cap. <laughs> They've got Alex Ferguson and Solskjaer with, with Ferguson in the middle. Oh. Absolutely iconic. It's like some kind of Manchester United Mount Rushmore. Yeah, absolutely. What a great shout. Before we, well, before we, before I let you go and then we'll take a break and you're miraculously back in the studio with me. Yeah. Porto put Roma out. As James was mentioning on the podcast on Monday, this was a must, must win for for, uh, Roma and they went out in extra time. Another VAR penalty. So absolutely wild. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people would not have probably cared that this game went to extra time after the Man United game, but um more, more, like an more trouble thriller. for Roma. Porto three, Roma one. Yeah. That looks like an absolute thriller. Yeah, but for more on the Roma stuff, I'd recommend people go back and listen to James on our podcast on Monday well, where course. you get a lot yeah. more of the context of what's going on at Roma. But um that's a, this is a bad week for Roma, losing in the Rome Derby and then out of Europe. For sure. Absolutely wild. Right, man. Are you going to be able to sleep tonight? Yeah, no, I'll be fine. I'll, actually, no, actually, I won't be fine. Um, but no, that's good. Have some hot that's milk. <laughs> <laughs> right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're back with Real Madrid, Ajax, and then we're going to speak to Michael about Dortmund Spurs. But Ryan, the magnificent Ajax victory of Real Madrid. We had a lovely time watching that game, didn't we? It was, uh, it was we so should, pure. Yeah. Do you know what? I'm going to start by saying that Real Madrid's run in the Champions League has been absolutely incredible. They were champions of Europe for 1,012 days, which is very easy to forget in the aftermath of what happened at the Bernabeu. And also the fact that no one had retained the Champions League until Real Madrid did it. Yeah, in the Champions League era, and then they did it three, three, you know, right. three in a row. So, however, I will caveat that by saying... I am extremely delighted for Ajax. Absolutely, likewise, likewise. The victory was just pure in so many ways. So um, Ajax won 4-1. But if you look at that scoreline, it doesn't really reflect the points at which the game could have gone either way. The tie could have gone either way. Madrid started very well, very um, aggressively, hit the bar very early and Varane should have scored with a header and really pushed the pitch, uh, pushed the play very hard the pitch. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. The one thing, I watched the game back again because I think we were a little bit too caught up in it at the time to... <laughs> for, yeah, straight after the game, we should have uh, recorded this. It would have been a laugh. But I anyway. feel the same, to be honest. Like, I, yeah, no, I feel no less elated or excited about what Ajax did on reflection mm. just because there was so much about it to be praised. The withdrawn role of Dusan Tadic, Frankie de Jong, who basically played a kind of cross between Iniesta... Busquets. I mean, there was there were Chavi elements. You want to you want to say it, don't you? I can't say it. You'll say it, but I can't say it. Say it. it well, he's going to Barcelona. So the thing that was amazing about Ajax was how brave they were. Right, being two one down, going to Madrid, second leg. It would have been very very easy for them to stay compact or you know wait for the chance. And they really went at Real. They really really went at Real. And you know you tend to find that in a lot of Champions League success you can trace a moment of luck every team has that one moment of luck maybe and maybe that's a cliche but i think it it's really applicable and the varan header onto the bar was that i think mm. for, for ajax because you know if they went one all down it might have been a very different story but the way that they were so brave and they were just really really impressive and actually they were a really refreshing alternative to a lot of what you see in these kind of stages of the champions league which is ultimate focus on structure and 
discipline and shutting up shop or kind of waiting for the opportunity. And they just blitzed Real. And they played so calmly out of danger. This was the thing. I mean, everyone's highlighted Frankie de Jong's performance and, and a couple of occasions where he plays out past Vinicius and Modric, you know, leaves Vinicius on the seat of his pants twice, beats the press. And Modric, unable to dictate terms at all. And I think what was so symbolic about this loss was that all of the key figures in the run through those, you know, three to Champions League, you know, the ones that are still at the club, one by one, they were humiliated. Mm. Benzema, ineffectual, Bale, ineffectual, Modric, unable to dictate tempo or terms. And this was a real sort of passing of the torch. And it was interesting because they all passed the torch at once. Um, and I think, you know, we'll talk about, about De Jong maybe a little bit more later, but just in terms of this history, 995 Ajax win the Champions League, of course, and at halftime it was 2-0 to Ajax. And I deliberately did not compare that 2-0 to the 2-0 in the group yeah. stages because in the group stages, anyone watched that game uh, in 95, I think they hit the woodwork a couple of times, a couple of goals disallowed. Yeah. You know, it was That was a total domination, whereas halftime here, 2-0, Ajax were just sort of desperate to get to the break at one point. Yeah, I mean, it definitely felt like that. We we said when we were watching the game, I, I hit, the game hit about 38 minutes and that was when Real really started to Apply turn up, basically. Right. Yeah. And we said... You know, Ajax really need half time actually. Whereas before that, they really didn't. Even after um, Varane hit the po- it hit the bar, sorry, Ajax was straight up the other end again, just you know creating chances. And actually, they could have been three 0 up, and they could have been four 0 up before Real Madrid really started getting into the game. And they were that good in the first leg as well. They were they actually were. very unlucky to to lose that game. And I've got to say, you know, Sergio Ramos. Much has been made of the fact that he seemed to have got himself deliberate booking and was out of the game because of his complacency. But with that kind of complacency, I'm not sure he would have been much of a factor in the game anyway. I'm not sure he would have stopped what Ajax produced. Well, the thing that blew my mind, and this is one of the reasons why I watched the game back again, because I wasn't 100% sure if I was seeing it right. But Ajax started with the midfield of Van der Beek, uh, Schoener and De Jong. So on paper, Schoener was the deepest line midfielder in the, form, in the formation. But Van der Beek was often the highest player on the pitch for Ajax. And... Schoener spent a lot of time, especially in the first half, I think, on the right touchline. De Jong would often be the deepest player at a couple of points for Ajax. So the space that they gave each other, I think, on the pitch was something that you don't see a hell of a lot at the moment. You tend to see maybe one or two of the forward players really stretching, super, you know, providing width. But the whole team seemed to be spread out across the pitch. That means that they absolutely trust everyone who gets on the ball to keep the ball because if they lose it they're in a lot of trouble oh, yeah. and actually saw with De Jong De Jong lost the ball once which led to a chance for Real but the way that they moved Real Madrid around as well their fluidity was just honestly it was breathtaking I thought I've, I've not ha- I've not enjoyed a European night of football that much I don't think for a very long time yeah and I likewise and I cannot name the last game I enjoyed that's how long it's been since I really got into it I mean we've enjoyed a lot you know there's been times but but this was a different thing this kind of this felt very special without sounding over the top but this just felt very special and I think maybe this is because of you know we're in our 30s and we remember Ajax being a giant of European football and I think maybe a little bit of nostalgia plays into that you know we've said it on the podcast before how much of a soft spot we have for Ajax and how much we would love them to be consistently in the last eight or the last four of the Champions League every year because in my opinion those kind of blue chip clubs if you like are really special when they're up there yeah um because of their approach to the game, and I think that's, and that, that I think it's nostalgia does play a, a part, but not that much. Because the thing about young players excelling at that level, 
I mean, it's like when Mbappe took the World Cup by storm. There is something very special about somebody playing, not just because they're young, but with this maturity mm. and watching De Jong walking out of the press, walking. And mm. the guy was not running. The guy jogs. I don't think he has a fifth gear or even a fourth gear. He jogs everywhere. But to basically take Modric toe-to-toe and dominate him, you know, Modric is still an extraordinary force. Of course he is. Very, very few footballers can claim ever to have done that. To do it at 21 is yeah. just... I mean, I've wrote a piece that might be up uh, by the time you're listening to this about um, the game and Ajax in general and De Jong. And it's easy to forget that just how much pressure there was going into the game for him. Yeah. You know, it's the first time he's played in the Bernabeu, I believe. Um, it's the first time definitely since he announced that he's going to Barcelona. And it was like he'd played there a hundred times. He was not phased. But it's really easy in that scenario for player of that age to become a little bit overwhelmed or be a bit nervy in the early stages yeah. of the game it's that's a completely natural thing if it's Cruyff the brightest playing, it's the yeah. brightest lights on the biggest stage you yeah. know and the thing with De Jong was that there was nothing that wasn't necessary everything was done for the sole purpose of progressing Ajax forward yeah and or progressing the play and I just think that games like that game make people realise just how special talents like De Jong are. You know? It was definitely a pivotal. I mean, look, this reminds me of, and I mentioned Iniesta before, but this thing when your description of Ajax as brave, the last time I heard that description of a team playing brave tactics was actually Gary Neville describing Barcelona. And he was talking about something very similar, the space they leave between each other, the way they play out from the back. And there were periods I went to see uh, Iniesta play once, which I mentioned many times before, both on off this podcast. I know, yeah, I did. (laughs) And Iniesta's unique ability, I think, is to receive the ball anywhere on the pitch under any kind of pressure and not lose possession. And that makes it invaluable when playing out. And De Jong showed that last night in a way that was absolutely breathtaking. And I know that Tadic was named man of the match and, you know, rightly so because of what he contributed. But in my opinion, the two were neck and neck. Because what... De Jong enabled further up the pitch. I mean, he was basically playing like a, a hybrid Busquets Iniesta role where he's taking the ball. He was the, th- he was the deepest centre-back for mm-hmm. a lot of the game. It was absolutely wild watching that. The thing that I really love about him is that he has all the best attributes of the entire Barcelona midfield currently, but in one player. Right. And he's so adaptable. You know, I kind of referred to him in this piece as like a, you know, the, the saxophonist in a band who only plays when there's space to play or, right. you know, but he's, he's, he's in charge really, but it's about everyone else. It's not always about him. He doesn't have to do eight minute solos. And the thing I thought Tadic was incredible was because he attracted loads of attention because he was a hard to handle for, for that back four. I thought maybe the only player who was slightly underwhelming because of how highly we rate him was Delic. actually. There's a couple of times where he didn't look as comfortable on the ball in the first half, but also I think that was to give Ajax a little bit of leeway, like a breathing room just to kind of get rid. It also reminds us how good Madrid are. I mean, it's funny because we talk about being unsure on the ball, but they were playing Madrid. They were yeah, playing exactly. light yeah. speed Vinicius, unfortunately went off and I hope he... Yeah, that looked, that was actually quite sad because he looked really devastating and Lucas Vasquez had gone off shortly before that. Right. Can we say as well, um, Vinicius has really taken the fight, but someone who didn't take the fight, Tony Cruz, I mean, 10 losses of the ball in the first half. He was... 10 losses of the ball in the first half. Not time. good. I, it, do you know what? It really felt like, um, and I don't want to sound too harsh here or whatever, but it really felt like the two midfields were so contrasting. It was definitely what has been and what is coming. You yeah. know, the thing about this game was that it just highlighted all of the problems that have been plaguing Madrid all season. Right. And 
put them into sharp focus. I was just checking some stats and I think yeah, 10, 10 in the first half, I think it was that he lost the ball. And there was a period in the second half, maybe the worst concession of all, where he played the ball and it rolled loosely into touch. And I thought to myself, do you know what? This configuration of Casemiro, Modric, Cruz, it, it has a shelf life. And Cruz, you know, Casemiro has to do more mm. in distributing. He can't just be the bruiser who rushes about not always position most disciplined, but basically cleaning up. He has to be more of a playmaker and orchestrated from deep. Yeah. And I wonder now if they look at someone like Kovacic, well, I'm not sure they have the vision for that. I mean, why Kovacic was allowed to leave. Yeah, I, I can't understand I that mean, personally. that is extraordinary. Yeah, I really can't understand yeah, that. Yeah. But, you know, in contrast, I got De Jong's, Frankie De Jong's stats up on StatZone. Ah, yes, our beloved StatZone. Um, what are they so saying? Yeah. What are the numbers saying? <laughs> uh, pass completion of 90.7%. 25 forward passes out of 54 or 25 completed out of 49 actually so basically 50% of his passes were forward um, he only played the ball 49 times yeah. he seemed to have it all, all the time. time which is the thing that's so good about him was that he was always directing or you know seems to be involved even when he's not on the ball um, me. 8 out of 10 passes in the attacking third but then 3 out of 3 tackles which is the really interesting thing. Two out of four take-ons and six ball recoveries. So that's it just shows how dynamic he is as a midfielder. He's kind of got the lot. And it's where he was winning the ball as well. Yeah. The pitch, one of those was like in final third almost. Yeah, yeah. incredible. <laughs> I really think he is the, the, you know, I kind of said this in the piece as well, like Modric has often been described as quite Cruyffian. Mm. And I think that this game, you really saw just how Cruyffian Diong is. And actually as great as Modric is, and this isn't a slight on Luka Modric because we love Luka Modric as a player. We, everyone knows that. But Frankie Dong is almost so Cruyffian that he's like more Cruyffian than Cruyff in a way. Do you know what I mean? In terms of the mould of what Cruyff would ideally love a midfielder to be. It's just and so this sounds massively clean. over the top for a 21-year-old, but it's the fact. Do you know what's funny? When, when I saw, it's funny what you mentioned when um, Guardiola talked about arriving at Barcelona and watching Iniesta play and how he was one of the few players who needed very little coaching, if any because the style was so natural and so clean. And I think there is a lineage there. And I've talked about Iniesta because there is that descent. You know, I think I never, I never actually saw Modric as Cruyffian, weirdly enough. And I say that because there was an elusive nature, not that Modric doesn't beat the press, he's astonishing at that, but there's a physicality to Modric's play, which actually was not really that much in Cruyff. Cruyff relied more on, I think, the elusiveness, the sleight of foot, and actually the kind of the croquette of the dribble where he does a sort of left foot, right foot shuffle and comes out of defence. I was like, that is, that's Andres, that's Laudrup. That's, yeah. that's actually, again, Laudrup as well. Yeah. I've got to mention Michael Laudrup yeah. in the context of this lineage of sort of Cruyff, Laudrup, Iniesta, you know, and now De Jong, yeah. the Ajax family tree. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I, I think we mentioned on the podcast the other day that Barcelona midfield next season is going to be so good. Can you imagine what he's going to be like contrast, when he goes there as a Barcelona player? Can we contrast player? football cultures, actually? Sorry, very quickly, but British football culture. When you're at school playing and you have possession people would scream man on, yeah. man on, man on, man on. And you're like, oh my goodness, oh my God. And you sort of- Get rid. Yeah, get rid, get rid. And whereas the Dutch mentality is, wow, man on, how many more? Oh my yeah. goodness, wow, man on, okay, let's two, three. How many men on, how many men, how many? Two, three, four. Because if I invite pressure, then I free everyone else up. Mm. Tadic did that to an extent. Um, Neres did that, who had a great game as winger. A bad miss, actually, a bad mm. miss, which Ajax thankfully weren't punished for. But they just played with, they played with freedom. Yeah. And that is, look, that's the thing. I mean, it should be the title of the podcast. Playing with freedom. Like, but yeah, freedom football. Freedom Ajax. Freedom football. Listen, yeah. it was, um, it was really, really great. And I'm really excited to see who they get in the next round. Me too. Um, 
the only the only the only people not excited to see who Ajax get in the next round it's are people facing Ajax in the next round. <laughs> um, should we give Michael a call? He was at the he was at Dortmund Spurs last night. So he's Absolutely. Going to give us a little bit. Of and by the way, there. before I forget, um, the catfish is obviously someone who was not what was promised, and Ajax were the fish cat. Oh, they were the fish cat. What a lovely. There we go. Switcheroo. Let's go to the break. <laughs> And we're back from the break, joined by the itinerant, the peripatetic, Michael Indisposed. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, Michael, great to have you with us to discuss Dortmund Spurs. But before we get into that, where are you at the moment? Where are you on your travels? Yeah, so I'm in Bonn in Western Germany at the moment. I got back from Dortmund, where I witnessed a very mature performance from Tottenham, I must say. It's interesting, this performance, because Spurs dispatching Dortmund in the Champions League is not exactly new, and neither is Harry Kane being decisive in this fixture. So... What was new about the Spurs win over Dortmund? A couple of things from a Spurs perspective. I would say, firstly, the fact that it was in a knockout uh, a knockout game. Um, right. Spurs have played Dortmund before in knockout games, but it was in the Europa League, and that was at a very different point during Spurs' development under Pochettino. So, um, yeah, this was, this was new, as in, you know, Tottenham really needed to get the result. They had to put in a big defensive display, and they, they did. And I haven't really seen that from from Tottenham. Like, go to a big team away from home and produce a dominant defensive performance. So, from that point of view, it was it was new. But also the fact that Spurs have really are starting to accrue some some experience, which is starting to stand them in, in good stead, which perhaps wasn't there uh, previously. From a couple of perspectives, it was it was new, and it was uh, I think mature is, is definitely the word to describe the performance. Who stood out for you then for Spurs? Well, firstly, I would say Ben Davis had his probably his best game for Spurs. Oh, right. okay. I thought he was really effective. Doesn't always get the the praise he deserves, but yeah, he put in a very effective performance. I think the entire back line were great. I mean, Vertonga made a, another huge block. Larice was was great when he had to be. Um, it wasn't really a game for the forwards. I know Harry Kane took his chance really well. One shot, one goal from Spurs. But it was a night where Hyungman Son was fairly quiet. Ericsson was too. I thought Sissoko was excellent too. He really dominated midfield. But yeah, it was kind of like roll your sleeves up, kind of gritty performance from Tottenham. But um, Alder Vareld as well, I thought was excellent. And I was one of a few journalists who spoke to him after the game. Oh, fantastic. Um, um, should we listen to the clip actually? Yeah, sure. Great. Go for it. It's, 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 it was very, very tough the first half, half an hour, you know, and then I think that the team um, is growing, is playing much mature um, to get through those kind of moments. You know, if you, if you concede, of course, yeah, you need sometimes a little bit of luck of a good goalkeeper and stuff like this, but I think we, we, we dig in and then we knew we don't concede and that's, that's very important. And maybe, maybe the team of a couple of years ago could concede and then, and then it's much, diff- much more difficult. So I think, yeah, we, we're making steps forward here. Yeah, so I think you can hear Toby Alderweireld saying there that um, Spurs have matured um, over over time, and I think this is what's so important for Tottenham that they they keep these this core group of players together. And we've mentioned it before about Spurs and their development under Pochettino. But you know, this time last year, Spurs went out at this stage of the Champions League to Juventus, and it was said at that point that it was experience really that beat Spurs that night. Um, you know, if they just had a bit more know-how, um, then they would have got through that that game because they played well over the, the two legs of that. Um, here, perhaps you can say, well, it's Dortmund that need that experience and Spurs are the ones that have matured. So it's interesting to see how 
far that can take them this year. Well, that's the thing, Michael. It's funny you've slightly preempted this question, but there is really no consistently outstanding side in the Champions League this season. There's lots of streaky teams capable of great peaks, yeah. but Spurs actually stand a pretty good chance in any matchup against any of the teams coming up, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think um, Spurs definitely have have some weaknesses, but um, as you mentioned, they there's a lot of the teams in there do. I would say Atletico has. <laughs> I'm sure you would agree, Musa. Right. Um, <laughs> perhaps, <Resident. Okay. laughs> perhaps the the team to beat in certainly in in my eyes as well. They them and Barcelona are the the, the standout teams, and PSG will want to be avoided too. But Spurs are, I think, among that clutch of teams. Perhaps a bit like Ajax, who have the potential to go on that run. You know, they could go, they could just sneak their way into a final. Even I would agree. Um, mm. Yeah. But yeah, it could be that kind of year, you know, a bit like 2004 where you've got I'm, two teams. Yes, absolutely that. Yeah. Oh, what yeah. a bunch of nerds we are. I'm glad. I was like 2004, <laughs> oh, please say it. reminds me of uh, 2004. I haven't heard that name in years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just don't see it as a year for the, the, the you know, two or three blockbuster teams fighting out in the semifinals. I just think that you're going to get a couple of teams in the semis that you wouldn't necessarily have expected. Fantastic. A quick one about Dortmund, Michael, because um, they've let their lead slip in the Bundesliga. They're out of the Champions League. Any stuff about Lucien Favre or the squad, or is it still pretty positive? You know, I think at the beginning of the season, if you'd said to Dortmund that they would be in the position they're in, last 16 of the Champions League and still top of the Bundesliga just by the skin of their teeth, they, they probably would have taken that. The momentum is not with them at the moment, which nice. is perhaps what has created this feeling of uh, anti-climax or whatever. But, you know, they're still very much in it. And I think going out of the Champions League could focus their minds and, you know, there's there's not many games left, really. It could it could do their Bundesliga hopes some, some good, I think. And very quickly, how was that, just to wrap up, how was um, our man in Sancho corner? Because we have to mention Sancho, <laughs> even in difficult times. Yeah, I think Sancho was good in the first half, um, but a bit like the entire team, the, the Kane goal kind of deflated him and he became less effective. A bit like the first leg, actually. Um, mm. You could say that Dortmund... Um, were good in the first half of each game, um, but just faded away. But yeah, I thought Sancho was was uh, bright. He wasn't so good against Augsburg. He came in for some criticism after that game that Dortmund lost. But I thought he was he was bright and he played some some nice some nice passes and was just fearless as you know the, the the Sancho we know. But what really always impresses me about him is he doesn't always play the obvious pass. He sometimes pays the pass that or he or he holds onto the ball for, for a second longer just to let the play develop. And you know, he he, he thinks about the game two steps ahead. Um mm. which is for someone of his age, you know, you might expect that of someone like Luka Modric. Um right. but for someone of his age to have that perception, that understanding of the game, being able to watch it unfold in his head before it actually happens, that constantly impresses me about him. So He's a, he's a clever um, boy. There's definitely more to come from him. And I saw some people say, yeah, he's overrated. No, no, no. No, 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 no. He's under- Sorry, sorry. I, t- I just want to say, for the record, incorrect. Anyone who says <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. 100%. He's underrated. He's, he's underrated. Actually. Yeah, he's underrated. Yeah, for yeah. sure. He's, he's, he's got so much more to give as well. I mean, I think if, if you think that his peak is perhaps still six or seven years away. Terrifying. <laughs> All good. Right, man, we should probably let you go. Why not? Are you going to be here on Monday? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will be. I'll be back in back in the studio. Just looking at this Monday. empty chair. 
sat next to us. It's so Absolutely. sad. Well, Michael, it's great to hear from you as always, and uh, we hope you have a wonderful time in your travels. Please drop by and see us soon. Um, <laughs> Don't be a stranger. And we've been we've been giving everyone a lot of hype about the uh, upcoming editions of the print uh, for Abona because it's going to be fantastic. And Michael, yeah, signing off. See you soon. See you guys. See you again soon Cheers, in Berlin. Man. Okay, quickly before we go, quick shout out to the England women's team who won the She Believes Cup in the US drawing with the world champions, the USA, and beating the previous World Cup finalists, Japan, 3-0, to lift the trophy. It's the first time they've won the trophy and a massive boost ahead of this year's World Cup in France. I'd recommend going and read some really great pieces. Susie Rack, who was on the show last week, she was there covering it. She writes for The Guardian and also Katie Wyatt on The Telegraph. They've been covering the tournament and there's some really good pieces out there. And that's about it for this bonus edition of the podcast. We'll hopefully all be back on Monday. If you do listen on iTunes, please give us a review and a rating. It really helps us grow the podcast. Also, we have a couple of new pieces up on the site this week. I wrote a piece about Frankie Diong and Ajax uh, with some references to jazz and all sorts. That's up on the site now. There will be a piece coming this week from Musa as well. And also make sure you check the Rabona Twitter page for the Rabona Selects. There was a, a Frankie Diong John Clemmer one that went up after the Ajax game. And yeah, make sure you check us out on social media at Rabona Mag. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. 